Welcome along to the Niall Boylan Show special. We've got a special interview for you today because we are very much focused on free speech in this country, as you are well aware. And I was delighted to be part of the event in the RDS going back a few few weeks ago when we talked about the hate speech laws. What a great event. What a great turnout. Some wonderful people there, including, of course, Michael Schellenberger from the Twitter Files, who was also there at the time. Now, we I'm looking at this particular situation, and it's called the Westminster Declaration. I don't know whether you've heard of this, but it was presented today as the Prime Minister of the UK, Richie Sillock. And uh, it says on it, and I'm looking at the website, if you want to go onto the website, please do, by the way, the westminsterdeclaration.org. And it says, we write as journalists, artists, authors, activists, technologists, and academics to warn of increasing international censorship that threatens to erode centuries-old democratic norms. Coming from left, right, or centre, we are united by our commitment to universal human rights and freedom of speech. And we are deeply concerned about the attempts to label protected speech as misinformation or disinformation, or the other ill-defined terms. This abuse of these terms has resulted in censorship of ordinary people, journalists, and dissidents in countries all over the world. Such interference with the right to free speech suppresses valid discussion about matters of urgent public interest and undermines the fundamental principles of representative democracy. And I think we would all agree with that. Here in Ireland, of course, we're now battling against what we call hate speech laws that are being brought in by our Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, who seems determined to bring these in. While Ireland is seeing increasing crime, she's very much focused on appeasing the NGOs of this country. And not only that, of course, we now have an organisation who've been set up um, to look at the information online, be it on Twitter, Facebook, or whatever it is, here in Ireland, as part of the European um, Digital Act. Um, this is, They're called the Electoral Commission, and have a quick listen to what they said before I go to my guest. Have a quick listen to what they said. Um, what I actually said was having, we spent 20 minutes with a panel of people who gave many, many examples of electoral misinformation and disinformation. And what I actually said was, as well, as you have heard from the panel, the scale of this challenge is enormous. The commission was established in February and our job is to look forward. But we can't ignore the fact that there is weighty, international evidence um, that electoral misinformation, disinformation carries on online in a survey um, or the research that was done between 2016 and 2021, um, 53 countries um, were, were, were examined and in 92% of those cases um, there was found to be examples of misinformation, disinformation. Ireland wasn't one of those countries, but I think um, there is no reason to assume that we'll be exempt from this into the future as well. Ireland wasn't even one of those countries examined that found any misinformation or disinformation, but yet, of course, they're one of those countries that are going to have three people sitting at a desk deciding what you and me can actually look at, read, and decide what we believe is fact or fiction. Well, this declaration addresses that. We've spoken to Michael Schellenberger on the show many times before. Michael, of course, is an advocate of free speech. Matt Taibbi, of course, another one of the authors of the Twitter files. And joining me today is an author, a writer, and also part of the Twitter files as well, and a man who is very much focused on free speech, Andrew Lowenthal, who's a writer, author, and also an advocate for free speech. And with Michael Schellenberger, Matt Taibbi, he was also involved in the Twitter files. Uh, good afternoon to you, Andrew. How are you? I'm very well, Neil. Thanks for having me. Now, Tell us, first of all, uh, we'll come, come back to Ireland and the rest of the world in a few minutes when it comes to free speech and how we believe it's been eroded. 
But talk to us first about the Westminster Declaration, how it came about and how we've got the, the amount of names, the likes of Julian Assange, Tim Robbins, um, you know, I'm looking here, Stephen Pinker, Nadine Strossen, I'm looking at Richard Dawkins, but John Cleese, amazing number of people who have a lot of power and a lot of push. How do we get all these people on board and what exactly is it about? Well, the declaration came about as a result of a meeting that was convened in, in London uh, in June earlier this year. Uh, of free speech advocates from both the left and, and the right, essentially who are all seeing this kind of crisis in, in many respects that was unfolding that had been enabled by this heuristic of mis and disinformation that was slapped on anything rather cynically that you know, elites or, or those in power didn't like and it squashed debate, often very uh, legitimate debate, often had uh, kind of scooped up things that were true and it certainly uh, frequently scooped up debates uh, around legitimate topics uh, that, that, you know, needed to be discussed in the public square to determine what the truth was. So from that, from that meeting, essentially, uh, it was proposed that a declaration be Put together uh they brought to brought together all of our ideas uh, and that was what was crafted and then uh, that uh, rather exceptional group of uh people i must say because of you if you look at the names that you mentioned you know i don't know most of those people but i worked with those people to to pull together um that very extensive list and i think that the list itself is testament to just how wide an issue this is and just how much it resonates with the public at large I mean, we're seeing it more so in Europe now at the moment as well. And, you know, I'm sure you're very familiar with the Digital Services Act, uh, which is enacted now. I know Elon Musk is fighting against it at the moment. Mind you, he needs everybody's support to continue to fight against that. So essentially, we have Europe and each individual country, Ireland, and I mentioned the Electrical Commission a few minutes ago, who are deciding what we can and can't see based on what their opinion is. And we've seen that recently in a letter to Elon Musk from the head of the EU telling him what should and shouldn't be put up in relation to the war between Israel and Palestine. So do you believe that, you know, we are being denied information, information that could be factually correct, but because of what they believe, you know, that we shouldn't be allowed this information? This is very Orwellian, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've certainly been denied all manner of, of information. And I think one of the, the things that the Twitter file showed us was that this was coordinated, that there was coordinated a conversation between government, between big tech, between sections of the security community, um, working with academics and NGOs essentially to sense a legitimate speech. You can look at the, the, the lab leak hypothesis, look at uh, censorship around uh, the vaccine. I mean, the list is extensive and they got a whole bunch of stuff um, wrong uh, as well. They weren't just censoring things that were incorrect, which would have uh, been a problem in and of itself. Are they the right people to decide? But oftentimes they censored things that were true say you know, did uh, you know the, the obviously the dominant hypothesis now is that the the virus came from the, the wuhan institute of virology the vaccine didn't stop transmission i mean these are all things that were considered disinformation uh, well you point. you were banned from facebook for even suggesting that go back two and a half years ago you would have had your account suspended for even exactly. mentioning the word exactly. wuhan and laboratory in the same sentence but now it seems exactly. the CIA have even established that this is most likely uh, the reason why the COVID virus got out there, whether it was done intentionally or it was leaked by accident, God only knows. But we know that to be true. 
Um, so the fact is, is that what we're trying to do, or what some people are trying to do, is censor hypotheses that they don't agree with, rather than information they don't agree with. Yeah, I think it's a very good point, because we're not even talking about facts, we're talking about hypotheses, and can you posit an idea that can then be explored, and what happens essentially to knowledge and truth if you cannot posit particular hypotheses that can be proven true or, or disproved. Um, we end up in a very kind of dark place or could go into a very dark place in terms of how we try to come to the truth and understand society and, and advance together. And obviously now with the war, um, that there's even more pressure uh, in that regard. And given the track record uh, that we've seen from authorities, you know, this new kind of war on terror, we're going to see moves to wind back civil liberties even further. In relation to what's happening, I suppose, at the war at the moment, that is one thing, as you mentioned, which is quite big on the internet at the moment, on social media. And obviously people take sides when it comes to these kind of things. Um, we've seen, obviously, this morning, uh, Ursula van Underline uh, talking about, you know, solidarity with Israel. We see other people having solidarity with Palestine. But there seems to be a narrative in one direction, you know, either way, depending on which social media you happen to be on or which accounts you happen to be looking at. And there is a fear, I suppose, that when we start to censor, that can have huge political gain to a country. I mean, because years ago, wars were fought on beaches. Years ago, wars were fought by men running up beaches with guns. But now wars are fought essentially online to some degree, because you can destroy a country, destroy a government by putting out false information in relation to that government. Absolutely. The front line is now staring at you on your screen. That is, uh, it's very, very... Um, present. We're all, we've all been scooped up into this um, process. And of course, we always were. There was always um, propaganda efforts, but it's far, far more intense. And of course, there is missing disinformation. And there is, you know, uh, things that do need to be done in terms of real state actors uh, fostering misinformation. But what, it, what has actually occurred has been a much, much uh, or an intensive focus on the everyday citizen seeing the everyday citizen as the threat uh rather than the focus on kind of industrial scale dis and disinformation where for which i think there is a legitimate role um for government but that's not yeah. how it has been um, i mean there's a, there's also a chilling and i spoke to michael schellenberg in relation to this before what we call the chilling effect and I'm sure you're aware of Ireland's proposed hate speech laws. Now, we already have hate speech laws, by the way. We have um, Incitement to Hatred Act, which was 1989. I didn't believe we need to add any more to it. But essentially what we're doing now is protecting people from being offended and upset. And, and that was established. Um, although the minister is you know, deciding which words and what words we can and can't say when she was asked recently in an interview and given a couple of examples, she kind of said, oh, well, J.K. Rowling wouldn't be guilty in this particular case, but maybe this one would. In other words, we're leaving it down to one woman to decide, or a judge indeed, if you're brought before the courts, to decide what is hurtful and what's offensive or hateful and what's not. I mean, that in turn has a massive chilling effect around the world, and particularly in Europe at the moment with this treaty and also in Ireland with their hate speech laws, that has a chilling effect on people where essentially they're afraid to speak. Absolutely. And I, but I actually think it's worse because I don't think it solves the problem of hate speech. I think actually if people feel that they're being imposed upon, that they're having the government is wagging their finger at them, they're liable more to think that they'd like to resist. Um, and, and because it's coming from the, from the top down, I think if you want to address hate speech, it's, it's a kind of bottom-up process 
Um, and it takes a lot longer than the kind of government enacting a law, but it lasts a lot longer. And the other thing too, the laws that the examples that were given by government on a regular basis, they only seem to apply to to right wing views for some reason. And maybe that's just something we've noticed in this country. They don't seem to apply to liberal views or left wing views, which can be equally as extreme. Like I've recently seen a protest with somebody holding up a sign said, "All turfs should die." Uh, and yeah. that, of course, is never raised as hate speech. But I can guarantee you, if somebody else went to the same protest and held up a sign saying, you know, female, or should I say a woman is an adult human female, you know, that yeah. would be considered to be hate speech by the state because we, there's only one narrative. Well, yeah, and I think one of the, if, if, if there are any silver linings of, of this new conflict in Israel-Gaza, it's that the left has now been caught up into this system. I mean, there's a huge call for canceling people who are pro-Palestine. I mean, some absolutely egregious and horrific speech that has been um, propagated by on university campuses in the US, etc. So this may be a reckoning that those who have proposed, which have in recent times been more from the left than from the right, who are now getting caught up into their own kind of system of kind of speech controls and cancel cancellation, maybe starting to have, I would hope, some second thoughts of whether or not that is actually the way we want to progress together as a society. Do you, do you feel there should be any censorship at all? Because I, I think I heard you say before that a free speech is the lesser of two evils. I'm assuming you mean, you know, look, we have to deal with the bad stuff if we're to allow the good stuff to go through. So, so do you still stand by that? Well, there are certainly, there are trade-offs. Right, there, there are definitely going to be. It's a free speech is not a perfect system. People are going to say bad things. People are going to say wrong things. People are going to offend people. It can get hijacked by bad actors. There, there. Are, it's not. It's not perfect as well. But it is essentially given the trade-offs. It's a system that we should choose because the other one is something totalitarian, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're seeing it particularly in American politics at the moment, um, you know, between Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. I mean, it seems that Joe Biden can say and do whatever he wants. If Donald Trump says something, I know he's not perfect either, by the way, can I point out? But it's we're pretty much drawing attention to it immediately, to anything he said that may not be correct. Um, and when we look at online, for example, we regularly see the same outfits are doing fact-checking. Now, this has been mentioned when it came to the Electoral Commission in Ireland, that the submissions at the moment for organisations to do the fact-checking. Um, some of the fact-checkers have been completely incorrect in the way they fact-checked. I mean, I've been personally fact-checked three times by the same organisation, and all three times I've found to be correct, but they still just disagree with me because they don't like me. So, you know, who is going to see... The problem is when you start to censor speech or start to, you know, filter information or disinformation or misinformation... We're then basing that on the person who's doing it and then deciding what is and isn't correct. So that's that's a dangerous road, isn't it? Well, absolutely. And I think the fact-checking is is massively politicised. And actually, we saw this recently in Australia with the referendum that just took place, whereby there, were, there was a, a fact-checking um, outfit at a university called RMIT that actually got, uh, had its contracts essentially suspended with Facebook uh, for bias fact checks and some of its staff were tweeting uh, for one side of the referendum. So that's not an independent 
um, fact checker. That's a fact, and and I think that is not that is the norm rather than uh, the the exception. And this is a problem. Anyone who is legitimately un undertaking fact checking should be cast casting these people out and yeah. going, "This is not what I've signed signed up for." But unfortunately, it really has become incredibly weaponized. Uh, and there's a reckoning coming that seems to be taking some time. So, I mean, I say that in the sense that I I kind of come from the kind of left. I was involved. I ran my own NGO, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, and we did some amount of anti-disinformation work. The work that we did, I felt, was pretty low scale and, and fairly legitimate focus on large scale state actors, kind of the level, kind of bots, you know, yeah. massive tens of thousands of bots that a state or a political party might might generate to manipulate a conversation online. That stuff is is real, but increasingly what I saw were projects that were encouraging censorship. And, you know, as we went down that rabbit hole into the, the Twitter files, you know, we found initiatives that literally were saying true stories could be considered misinformation if they disrupted the narrative that a particular set of authorities were trying to advance. In relation to, you were talking about the fact-checking there a second ago, and you, you ran your own organization, which were involved in, as you said, um, some of the lower stuff. Um, the fact-checking organizations themselves seem to be all, and you mentioned you were on the left, they seem to be all on the left, and they only seem to fact-check those who criticize NGOs or government. I mean, that's equally a dangerous route because we're not fact-checking both sides. We seem to be only fact-checking one side. Well, I would actually say that even is that a little bit different. I think they're fact-checking kind of disinformation street crime. So it's it is more towards the right, I would say, but it's also anyone. It's actually much more kind of elites versus the streets, I would say, in terms of how it's done. So you think of say people like um, the Great Barrington Declaration, people like Jay Bhattacharya and Sunetra Gupta and their opposition to lockdowns. They're, they're more towards the left than to the, to the right. Um, but they got in the way of a particular government policy. Um, and they were, and they were inconvenient. But you're, but you're right in the sense that it does tend to be mm -hmm. more towards the right than the left. But for me, the framework I think of it is more as kind of the kind of disinformation street crime versus disinformation corporate crime. It's the, the kind of corporate level disinformation that we should be focused on, not the kind of uh, stuff that's happening between academics, between happening in the pub. But where do we go now with social media? Because I have a strong feeling that we're not going to win. And uh, when I say we're not going to win, I believe the governments of the world and legislation, including European legislation, will stifle free speech. And we're going to have a situation, obviously, as you know, Elon Musk is not giving in to them at the moment. But for commercial reasons, he'll eventually have to give in because if he doesn't, what will happen is they'll just ban Twitter in Europe. That's that's the point we may get to, where he'll have to toe the line. Facebook will toe the line. They'll all toe the line because they're businesses and they have to make money. Yes. Well, I think one of one of the issues is that we put too many of our eggs in in a handful of baskets. In some ways, everyone's scrapping over five, six, seven, eight big platforms and what we need is actually a plethora of platforms we need 100 or 200 um youtubes and facebooks and and twitters so that they're much much more difficult to shut down so i think the future isn't necessarily kind of that it's not necessarily centralized i think the future is actually much more decentralized forms of social media 
um, that are, are much more difficult for um, the government to kind of issue their edicts uh, mm-hmm. and kind of towards and and force into operating in a particular way that one group of elites wants them to to operate under. Um, how far do you think the Westminster Declaration will get? I know it was delivered to Richie Sunak. Um, do you think he's listening? I mean, Richie doesn't seem like the worst in the world. Um, he has backtracked on some of the uh, recent government policies. Um, do you think he's listening, or do you think he? Do you think governments of the world, including Richie Sunak, do they understand the damage they could do with Orwellian laws? I think that I think there is a certain amount of backlash that is that is coming, and I think that some politicians have got the message that uh, increasing number of their citizens are have seen through uh, the kind of mis and disinformation um, scam, uh, you might you might say, uh, and they need to pay attention and do things differently. That said, you know the, the UK government during COVID there. 77th Brigade, the kind of anti-disinformation programs that they had were quite advanced and quite extensive. I don't know, are they being wound back? That would be a question to ask. They also just passed, they also just passed mm. the, their own UK uh, safety bill um, as well, which also has a number of repressive elements in it. Um, so, you know, uh, are we at the peak? I don't know. The war is, of course, uh, it's just changed the game yet again so we'll have to see but i think from the kind of oppositional perspective it's more urgent now than than it's ever been and when we talk about government censorship i i don't know whether when you were involved obviously in the twitter files uh with michael schellenberger matt taibbi and a few others i don't know whether your eyes were open to that were you, were you surprised or shocked or did you go into that knowing what what was probably going to come out of it anyway i mean i think i think anybody who didn't think the government were intervening or uh, you know essentially telling social media companies what they could and couldn't put up as a fool i mean i definitely had inklings and i've written stuff prior to that that suggested that you know what we did see uh there was happening but i didn't quite understand the depth of it and I didn't quite understand just how much the kind of NGO and academic uh, world was involved in this work that you know say for example one very prominent project the Virality project was run out of the Stanford Internet Observatory it was the one policing kind of so-called anti-vaccine misinformation which included by by their own definition true stories that might encourage hesitancy um, and they were working with NYU, New York mm-hmm. University, with the University of Washington. I mean, the, the kind of academic space was very, very central to all of this. And I had an inkling that that was happening because, again, I'd hung around those spaces and, and the NGO world. Um, but it was much more, they were much more central than I had um, imagined because we saw, say, private signal chat groups that were, that involved these academics and these NGOs with these large um other large entities like the aspen institute um all working together at a scale that that i had not really um that's what i hadn't envisaged just how just how tied together all of these sectors um had managed to become why just finally on the twitter files why did they stop at america because they seem to only focus very much on america the biden administration the trump administration but they didn't spread it out to Europe. For, of course, Ireland is the European headquarters of Twitter. 
And yet many people in this country and across the UK knew that during, say, COVID-19, during referendums that we had on abortion or marriage equality or whatever it was, you know, there were people silenced online. There were people who had their accounts suspended. There were people who were shadow banned on a regular basis. You know, those articles written by groups who were paid for by the state on a monthly basis to monitor social media. And they printed out, you know, stuff I was even mentioned on one of them too, which I'm quite proud of. Um, but why do you think you know, Elon didn't look to Europe to also look at Twitter files for Europe as well. It was the reason why he didn't do that. That that I could not um, answer, mm. but I certainly know there's a lot of people in, in Europe and in other places who wish they could get access to Twitter files about the UK, Ireland, Australia, um, India, all, all manner of different places. Uh, so mm. that that's really, you know, the, the journalists were picked were mostly um, American, and they had you know, the searches that they ran were, of course, about uh, more more regarding the U.S. Of course, um, yeah. operations and coordination that was going on. But I agree that there's a gap um, yeah. there. Should should uh, Musk ever decide to to reopen the files? Well, hopefully he will, and maybe Andrew, you'll be involved in that one as well. And she can give me a ring. I can give you a few tip-offs there. Um, well, look, good luck with the declaration. Uh, I hope it makes a difference. I don't know whether it's too late for Ireland because our Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, seems dead set on bringing in this legislation. She wants to bring it in before Christmas. I can't see that happening. And I also see a fear from the government to bring it in before an election, which will be next year, because there is an appetite against this. But it's called the Westminster Declaration. People can go on and read it. I I'm assuming you can go on and sign up or you can, uh, you can sign on the website if you wanted to support it. So we're not, we're not uh, doing a kind of mass signing, but we're certainly okay. encouraging people to use it in their own in their own way. So if you want to kind of have another group that signs it, of, of say academics mm. at your university, of people in your workplace, whatever it might be, then we would certainly mm. encourage yeah. you to do that. And, and the demands are there on the website. They can have a look at all that. There's quite a lot to read. I'm not going to read it all out you now, but a number of, including Ed, Edward Snowden, Oliver Stone, the filmmaker, uh, Judas Stange, Stella Stange, who we only interviewed there recently as well. Richard Dawkins, I mentioned, Tim Robbins, the actor, um, Stephen Pinker, look, John Cleese, the list goes on of people who are involved, when I say involved, who signed this. So if anybody wants to go onto the website, again, it's the westministerdeclaration.org. That's westministerdeclaration.org. I got to thank you very much indeed, Andrew, and I appreciate you talking to us today. Andrew Lowenthal, and good luck in the future. Continued the fight against free for free speech, not against free speech, for free speech. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, you too. Cheers. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube, and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 085 100 2255. The Nile Boylan Podcast. They told me to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms.